We all crave connection. At our core, we all want to feel loved and understood. Hi, I'm Nechami, founder of Carmela Cosmetics, a company that produces high-performance natural beauty products and is dedicated to uniting and empowering women through the power of color. This is We Are Women, a podcast where women speak their truth and celebrate their victories. This podcast came about as a way to give a voice to all women because we all have stories to share. It's a place where we'll learn about each other and ourselves, dive into important issues that affect us, discover all that we have in common, and make some memories. So pour yourself a glass of bread and get comfortable. Every night is ladies' night, and we are women. This podcast episode is brought to you by Uplevel, the app that's redesigning the world for women. Head over to uplevel.com, that's U-P-L-E-V-Y-L.com to join the Uplevel network and learn how to accelerate your life professionally, personally, and financially. Apply now and get access to highly curated, female-focused, and ad-free content. Membership required. Download the Uplevel app on the App Store today. I am so excited for tonight's interview featuring Dr. Colleen Reichman, a psychologist who specializes in eating disorder recovery. You may have heard of Dr. Reichman, maybe you even follow her, maybe you're part of her large community of 100,000 followers. Dr. Reichman was one of the original psychologists and therapists to post about eating disorders, eating disorder recovery healthy body at every size, promoting, you know, healthy body image. During this interview, Dr. Reichman shared her own journey, her struggle, and then recovery from the eating disorder, and why she decided later on as a therapist to specialize in treating people with eating disorders. Dr. Reichman offered advice for people who suspect that their loved ones may be struggling with an eating disorder, signs to be aware of and to look out for. Dr. Reichman also spoke about the importance of educating our young girls at an early age about eating disorders. I also asked Dr. Reichman what she would respond to principals who are afraid of exposing their students to the idea of eating disorders because they're nervous about putting ideas into their heads. She shared how she would respond to that and also shared what she would tell people who are having a hard time sympathizing with someone who has in disorder, that they just can't seem to understand the struggle. She also shared her Instagram boundaries, spoke about her book, The Inside Scoop on Eating Disorder Recovery, and what she wishes the next generation of women won't have to struggle with. I am so excited for you to hear this episode. I know that you're going to learn a lot and be inspired. As a child, I would say I was um, exceptionally shy like kind of excruciatingly shy and very sensitive um, and very attentive to detail. There's actually a, a part in my book where I talk about how I think I was four or five or something and I was in a ballet class and the story goes that we were trying to do some ballet move during a recital and we all got our tutus stuck together and the audience started laughing and the other ballerinas thought that was like you know, they were little kids so they laughed too. And I got really angry that the audience wasn't taking us seriously and like put my hands on my hips, <laughs> everyone. So I think that it's kind of indicative of my personality, just more serious, very shy, perfectionistic from an early age. Like I was telling my mom how to load the dishwasher when I was a toddler and saying like <laughs> all the forks together and all the knives together. Um, 
and which is great in certain ways. It's been a real, those are my strengths now, I would say, but also the flip side is it made things a little bit harder as I progressed throughout elementary, middle school, and high school. Um, and I think it set me up to kind of have some mental health issues, you know, especially in high school and college years. Right, right. Now that makes sense for sure. So now that you brought that up, I'm thinking we should, you know, could we talk about that a little bit about the mental health challenges? Yeah, so I struggled with an eating disorder um, that kind of started in, I was like end of middle school, early high school and progressed and got kind of increasing more, increasingly more severe throughout high school and then into college and then also into graduate school as well. So it was about a decade long struggle. Um, and a lot of it did stem from, I was very unpopular too. I had very few friends, especially in middle school and elementary school. So I think it set me up for kind of low self-esteem. And even though things shifted a little bit for me friend-wise when I got to high school, I just really had like really, really low self-esteem. You know, And I think I was always looking for something to kind of give me that self-esteem and also give me feelings of being in control and being good at something and um, losing weight was helpful with that early on. So it kind of, once I got the hang of it, it just kind of escalated and um, went pretty much unnoticed throughout most of high school and then got more severe in college because college, you know, that college tends to do that if you go in there with like an unchecked mental health issue. Right, right. So you said that um, it went unnoticed for a while. Do you find that that's that that's very common when when girls and women go through eating disorders? Do you find that it takes a while before people start noticing and take and you know start treatment? Yeah, it's really unfair because I do think unless there's um, extreme weight loss, it seems like that it will go unchecked for so many people. Um, and I do think also, if you start at a, at a higher weight, and even if there is a significant amount of weight loss, it, a lot of times it goes unnoticed as well in society, family members, friends kind of applaud, applaud people. And this is not to say that every eating disorder even involves weight loss because the majority don't actually. Um, and that, again, feeds into things kind of going unnoticed because there's this perception that it always has to be, you know, emaciation is the symptom. Um, so I do think that things fly under the radar, especially now with the, the orthorexia kind of subset of eating disorder behaviors. It's really easy to fly under the radar with that because our society is very focused on wellness and eating well and health and everything. So um, I've, I just think so many people go for years without getting help and especially adolescents and people who kind of need their parents or some, or, you know, somebody in charge to, to notice and help. I think it, it's really common for people to not have that happen for a while. Right. Yeah, for sure. I mean, personally, I have a friend who, and I talk about this on, on social, um, she's the one who inspired me to even give back to, to women struggling with eating disorders. And I was very close with her when she was, when she was in, must've been eighth grade and I was in 11th. And 
I had no idea. Like she had all the signs and I had no idea besides for the weight loss, which was the, you know, as you mentioned, that's, that's really what people look out for. Mm-hmm. And I didn't realize till years later when she said to me, you know, I go get the treatment. Like I have this eating disorder and I, I was shocked. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's so, it's so easy for people, especially when you don't know what you're looking for. And, and also it's hard to just, you know, you don't want to assume that about somebody and somebody's eating behavior. So it is, I get why people feel even, I get why people don't notice. I understand why that happens. And I also understand why people hold back from pointing it out or like asking people if they're okay, because I think that can also be very challenging and scary to do. Right. Right. Because it's like, you're, are you referring to like boundaries and comfort wise of asking people about? Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I don't know. I've found that it's really, it is hard to ask like friends or family members if they're doing okay when it comes to weight loss or just if, you know, eating disorder behaviors, because there's a, there can be a level of defensiveness or people are protective of that part of their life. So it, I think usually you could expect it to be messy at first, if you have to approach someone about it, like that's kind of the, the exception would be that it goes really well. And the person's like very open. Um, so yeah, again, I understand why it goes unnoticed. And I also understand why people are like, maybe I just, maybe that person's fine and I won't say anything, you know? Yeah, for sure. Do you have any advice for people who suspect that maybe their friends or family are struggling with food disorder? Like how to go about, how does, I guess how to go about it. Well, it's so tough, that conversation. Um, I do think the number one piece of advice is it's always better to, if you are concerned or just worried about something, err on the side of just saying something, you know, cause it's just, I, I can think of very few times where it's better to just keep quiet than tell a person like, I love you so much. I could be wrong here, but I'm just, you know, seeing X, Y, and Z happening. And I'm wondering if you're okay. And, you know, I'm here if you want to talk. I feel like that is the way to go into the conversation, just very much off the bat expressing that you're, you're, you know, you're having the conversation because you care about them and, you know, also acknowledging that you might be wrong, um, but these are your worries and then list, um, sometimes it's helpful to list specifics. Sometimes it's not always helpful to say like, I've noticed your body changed. Um, but if you see specifics with food or the person isolating, um, or just know of a behavior, you know, heard them using a behavior, things like that. I think sometimes it can be helpful to say like, this is what I've noticed. I'm just going to kind of put it on the table And I do think human beings are really good at reading when somebody's genuinely concerned and like that shines through. So if you go into it with that, that'll be your ally. That's so true. It's such a great point because, you know, I think that we have to double check ourselves sometimes. Like, are you looking for like gossip? Are you looking for interesting drama for drama or are you really genuinely like, do you really care about this person? So maybe even, you know, going to someone who, you know, is close to them instead of being the one. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Is that like what you're saying? Yeah. I think, um, approaching a friend and asking if they've noticed, um, but ultimately I do think at the end of the day, going to the person okay, saying like, this is, you know, I love you. This is what I've noticed. I'm doing this, you know, out of respect and love 
and just having a really open, transparent conversation. And that's, that's all you can do. You know, all you can do is express concern and say, you're here to try to help. And then the person may or may not be receptive. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense for sure. And what signs are, or are there signs besides for weight loss uh, that someone might be struggling with an eating disorder? Yeah, uh, there's so many signs. Um, weight loss is obviously like the most, you know, obvious and the most talked about, but, um, you know, I, like noticeably eating less, cutting out food groups, just seeming like they're not interested in eating in front of people, uh, missing out on activities because they, you know, have to work out or bringing very specific healthy food to social gatherings, bringing their own food. Um, obviously you have to be careful with that because there's food allergies and nuance there, but um, going to the bathroom a lot after meals, um, you know, any, any type of I think diet pills that you notice laxatives that all to me skirts the line on disorder, like especially laxatives, but even just those standard diet pills. I think if I had a friend and I saw that they were taking them, I would want to broach the topic. Um, cause that can definitely be a symptom chewing food and spitting it out. And then also things kind of like just being almost more obsessed with food, like watching a lot of food shows or being really into cooking and cooking for you. But, you know, the person never seems to be eating it themselves, things like that. And that's kind of across the board, eating disorders across the board, that can be a symptom. Okay. Yeah. Those, those make total sense for sure. Um, thank you for that. Mm -hmm. And okay. So let's go back to your own eating disorder uh, journey. Um, you mentioned that it wasn't really discovered until college. Mm -hmm. Were there symptoms beforehand? Yes. Um, I'm sorry, I'm in science. Sorry, science. Oh, no, that's okay. <laughs> um, there were definitely signs, I would say. I was really, I became more and more rigid about gym, going to the gym. Um, and I became very uh, just interested in my weight and talking about it a lot you know, to, to family members, to friends. Um, and I, there was, you know, some weight loss. Um, and I also just think the obsession with my weight and my body was at least looking back, I think it seems kind of obvious. Like I was, and I just think my perfectionism and how that was interplaying was kind of out there for everyone to see. But again, I know, you know, a lot of parents and friends don't want to see that. Like, it's just hard to, hard to see. So I also understand why people didn't call me out or approach me about it. But then when I got to college, those symptoms just kind of like, because basically I started binge drinking when I got to college, as so many people do kind of get sucked into that college culture. And it was almost like this perfect storm of like restriction, binge drinking, behavior usage. Um, and my mood was, I was, you know, suicidally depressed. I, it was just a really, it was not, you, you couldn't, it was very noticeable basically once I was there, like it was impossible to, for my parents to ignore at that point. Wow. Okay. So is that when you started treatment? 
Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's when I started getting help and kind of like cycling in and out of getting help, getting better, um, going to school, things going poorly again, getting more help. But it was kind of like a, a roller coaster for a number of years. And I was pretty sure that I was never going to, I know this is really common, but I was pretty certain that I was just never going to get better. I was like the air, the times when I was like somewhat stable, I was like, this is as good as it's going to get. And I need to make peace with that, that this will always kind of be my life, my lot in life. Wow. So it must be so inspiring. I mean, you must be so inspiring to your clients because you're, you really understand their struggle. You've been there and you've come out on the other end. Yeah. I think it, I always say, I think it kind of gives me like an empathy chip having gone through it because I, I'm guessing it must be difficult to sometimes have empathy for people with eating disorders. If it just looks like, you know, well, you could just eat and these problems would be solved. And the family like would be, we wouldn't have this chaos all the time if you just ate. So I think it is really, it is common for people to respond with like anger or not fully get it or not empathize. And having gone through it really gives me a ton of empathy. And when somebody says that they'll never get better, I really fully understand that feeling. And I always hold like a lot of hope that that is not the case for that person. And I've seen it be not the case so many times, even for quote unquote, you know, chronic, um, long-term sufferers. Wow. That must be so amazing to see. It is. It's yeah. There's nothing more rewarding than seeing someone like kind of get their life back. And it's, it's different than other. I, I used to, when I was in graduate school and I started working with people with eating disorders, like once I got into strong recovery myself, um, I remember talking with a supervisor and saying like, I kind of have to adjust, like when you go to school and for when you go to therapy school, it's kind of like they tell you, oh, you start doing therapy with someone, their mental health resolves. You, you know, you really, you, there's a lot of immediate gratification and that's not, I mean, that might be the case for some mental health issues, but for eating disorders, it's really like a lot of times more of a roller coaster. And I learned like, no, you have to be ready for the roller coaster to ride it with the person and then also be ready to celebrate very small victories along the way because they do add up. You just, you have to, you have to be able to see them and celebrate them and pay attention and not just look at like end picture, like recovered, resolved, that right. person good to go because there's so many, there's so much nuance there and so much other stuff to celebrate along the way. For sure. And I guess the same thing goes for the client that they know that they can't expect an overnight success mm -hmm. from treatment. Yeah. Which is tough. I think that's, I get it. I want to go to therapy and just feel like, you know, there's this really linear progression. Right. Um, but it's not, I think the research says it takes between three and seven years on average for most people to get into strong recovery from an eating disorder. So it's, it's a lengthy period of time. And it's also, um, yeah, it's a lot of therapy. It's a lot of money. It's, that's, I guess, a whole nother topic for another time, but a lot of privilege to be able to access treatment and care. So there's, um, there is that to expect when you're trying to recover. And I know that, that can sound really hard and really demotivating 
which I totally get, but I also think, you know, understanding that even putting the work in, like you, if you put the work in and you are getting help and you're taking active steps, you'll see little areas of improvement sooner than like seven years from now, you know, like there will be ways that you're feeling better along the way. Um, it just is a lengthy process. Right. Right. And, you know, I've heard, and I'd love to hear like your thoughts on this. I've heard that once someone struggles with an eating disorder, they technically always have that part of them that's struggling, like any mental illness. Is that true? Um, that's kind of a hot topic among professionals actually in the field at like, can you be recovered period? Or are you always in recovery? Um, or are you always just fighting the illness? And I personally know people who have worked through recovery and say that they don't have eating disorder thoughts anymore. Like they really just don't get them. So they consider themselves recovered. That part of them, that part of them doesn't like exist anymore. Um, what I think is more common and what's been my experience is you can get to a place like when you're in the eating disorder, these thoughts and feelings are kind of like grenades that ruin your entire day um, or week when they happen. And you can get to the place where you still have like thoughts here and there or bad body image days, but they're like those little teeny popper things that you throw on the ground and they just like, you know, those little things, they're like small fireworks. Oh yeah little popper. Yeah. They're kind of like that. And you can just sort of examine them with curiosity and say like, you know, that's interesting that my brain still does that when I'm really stressed. Now I'm going to move on and live my life and have the rest of my day. So I think that you could, a lot of people can get to that place. And then there is a subset of people that seem to really struggle, you know, in an ongoing way with ebbs and flows. Um, but my belief is that the treatment system is failing those people. They're not failing recovery or, or, you know, treatment. It's the system. So that's probably yet another rant for another time. <laughs> no, that makes sense. So you're saying, um, yeah, like you're basically saying that if they get the right treatment and they actually get to that point of, of being of heal of healing, um, that they shouldn't, they shouldn't like, I guess, go back to where they were previously. Yeah. I think that for the subset of people who kind of cycle in and out of treatment centers or have really intense relapses all throughout their lives, um, or just almost stay in the eating disorder for years and years, that's that I don't think it should have to be that way. I think we have a long way to go with tailoring treatment and, um, finding like what's actually helpful and also looking at systemic factors, um, the environmental factors, taking oppression into account. There's just there's a lot that the eating disorder field has to do to kind of catch up at this point and make sure we're helping everyone, not just a subset of people. Right. For sure. Yeah. That actually kind of reminds me of, um, you know, I went to a school that really did not talk about these things. So I think that was part of the problem because we weren't exposed or even educated about eating disorders. Mm -hmm. um, and any mental illness really, but, um, do you think that that's a common problem? And, um, if, if you, if you do, then what do you think should be done about that in regards to education, educating our girls? You know, I think, I think it's getting better slowly, but I still think the lack of education is astounding, not only in, um, 
like elementary, middle, high school, college, but then even when you get to graduate school and you say like, I want to be a therapist and help people with eating disorders, there's almost, I had so little training in graduate school. I had to seek it out and pay for it and do like extra. And there were obstacles along the way. So I just think, and medical students will talk about having an hour or two of training their whole like medical school career. Um, so I do think there's a real dearth of information and awareness. I think it's getting better. Social media might play a role in that. Although, you know, that there's pros and cons to that using social media to educate people or raise awareness. But um, I think starting from really early on would be important and having eating disorders and awareness about them be built into curriculum for even, you know, elementary schoolers. And because we, I believe elementary schoolers have health class, I think like they're at least taking like gym and health. I mean, they're exposed to, I know for certain, because I have parents emailing me that a lot of elementary schoolers are exposed to like stuff about healthy food and my plate and stuff like that. So if we're talking about food and eating and quote unquote healthy eating, we should also be talking about eating disorders and in a very nuanced way. So not just in, um, you know, what can happen to a small percentage of people is you take the diet too far and you lose a lot of weight and like, it should look much more nuanced than that. And we should be teaching about disordered eating on a continuum and it should be starting really young. And I think, I think in my dream world, there would be like education for also like gym instructors, instructors, like, um, like spin class instructors and people, um, and coaches and just people that are in, we interact with and our children interact with in their day-to-day lives so that, you know, there's just awareness across the board and people who need help are getting it, you know? For sure. Yeah. So what would you respond to, to people who, who say that they don't want to like principals or teachers, they don't want to expose their students to the idea of eating disorders to give them any ideas. I would respond that I see where they're coming from with that, um, but the students are being exposed to disordered eating every day, just in our society. So you're not exposed, you're not giving them any ideas that they are not already being exposed to that you just probably don't know about. Um, and also it's sort of similar to that, the, the idea that I'm sure you've heard this, but there's kind of a, like talking about suicide or asking a person if they're suicidal is not going to make that person suicidal. Um, but sometimes there's a fear of that, like, well, I'm going to give them the idea, but it's not, I mean, it's proven like research-wise that that's not correlated and bringing it up is kind of always the better option. Like they're, you know, with disordered eating, with with suicide with across the board with these mental health issues. So you're not giving them any ideas that they don't have. And just creating an open forum to talk about it and educate is, I don't know how that could be. I don't see a drawback, honestly. Okay. Yeah, no, that's a really important because I know for a fact that there are schools that won't talk about eating disorders because they're nervous about putting ideas into the students' heads, you know? Yeah. Um, but that's really, yeah, that makes total sense what you're saying. That, yeah, that's so, that's, <laughs> I've heard about that too, but it's just, I wish it wasn't like that. I know. Yeah. 
there are a lot of people who don't have eating disorders who cannot understand the concept of, you know, wanting to binge purge, you know, or starve yourself or whatever it is. What would you tell them? I would say that I, I think that there are people who, yeah, don't understand the more extreme behaviors, like how, why would you starve yourself? Why would you make yourself throw up? But I also think almost everyone struggles with body image issues and just in somewhat in their relationship with food because of just confusing messages and also body image ties into food so much. So I would ask people to kind of tap into, you know, those feelings that you often have about your body and maybe like wanting to control your weight sometimes. And sometimes that may or may not impact what you eat that day. Like picture that, but you know, intensified and exaggerated. And for some reason, this person's brain latches onto it and it becomes obsessional. Like if you can kind of picture how that might feel and how it implodes somebody's whole life or it can, um, that's what, that's how I would like sort of show them the inside of someone's mind. Right. No, that's brilliant because it's kind of like taking a feeling that you already have, but, um, and exaggerating it so that you can understand and I guess not understand, but have that empathy Yeah, for someone who's struggling. Right. Like I think a lot of people, I think most people have tried a diet at some point or dabbled in it. So I think even just picturing like, do you know, when you tried that diet or when you, and then you know, it was like a little stressful. And so it got frustrating and you stopped and you were kind of able to move on and without too much like upset picture that escalating and becoming obsessional and you want to move on, but you, for some reason you feel trapped in it to the point where, and when you think about, you know, if, yeah, I just think it's, if, if people can tap into that experience and then, like you said, exaggerate in their mind, you can probably get a flavor for what it's like for someone who's at the end of the bell curve with the eating disorder. Right. Yeah. That's great. It's interesting. Cause I, I remember at one point I was so stressed out with, I, I had something going on, like, you know, I think it was co- like during college or something. And I literally could almost not eat. Like I felt nauseous mm-hmm. and I started thinking to myself, like, this must be obviously not everyone who has eating disorder, but this must be part of what it's like to not be able to literally stomach food, like physically, because mm-hmm. really the physical and the mental really do interact with each other and affect one another. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it can really vary for a lot of people, whether they have that experience or not in the eating disorder, but it definitely, for so many of my clients, the lack of appetite and yeah, how much the, the interplay between mind body and having no appetite after a while, how that can be, it could just snowball and become such a struggle. And then And then you're being told by like professionals, if you get help to, you know, force yourself to eat essentially, and it just feels so wrong. So it's, I think it's all part of why it's such a complicated illness to treat. Right. For sure. Yeah. That makes sense. So at what point did you decide that you wanted to become an eating disorder therapist? You know, I went to grad school interested in eating disorders because of my experience, but I was still so immersed in it that I didn't want to work with people with eating disorders. In fact, I was like anybody else, the people with eating disorders. Cause I also, I wanted to do research, but then I wanted to close that chat. It was just like my whole life. So I was like, I want to just not have this be my career too. Um, 
And then <clears throat> I finally, towards the end of graduate school, got into strong recovery. And I was interested in helping college. I love college students. I still do. And so I was interested in working with college students with body image issues. I think I was just like waiting my way in, but I was like, that's what I'll do. I'll do body. And then inevitably eating disorders entered the picture. And then I noticed once I had even just my first client that the work felt so like, it just like clicked. And I was like, oh, this is like what I'm meant to do. I fully can, I, I, I can do this, you know, for the rest of my life. And I feel like I could make a difference. So once I had like a taste of it, I realized like I have to. Like I, and even if it's hard, which it is, it's one of the harder like fields of psychology to be in. Um, but I just knew like, as soon as I started that I had to keep doing it. Wow. It's amazing when you find that thing that lights you up mm-hmm. and you just know to go for it. It's the best feeling. Yeah. It's still like, I still smile thinking about it and just, I've worked in various treatment centers and though they can be really dark places to spend like the 40 hour work weekend. They, I was like some of my best memories, just memories of all time are like the people that I've worked with in those treatment centers and the progress I've seen and the hope that's been sparked and just um, like these beautiful souls that I've been able to connect with and feel like I hopefully made a small difference because I was kind of like using my knowledge of my own struggle to like light a little flashlight for them. That makes sense. Yeah, for sure. So at what point did you create your Instagram account? Cause you have a very large following. What, what are you up to today? Cause I I've been, I've, I've been following you for a while. So I know you have a lot of people, but do you know the number that, you have, that you're up to today? Um, I think it's, it's somewhere we're over 99,000. Wow. But since, the, since Instagram changed the algorithm, it's been hovering there for a while. Like <laughs> I first started the algorithm and just Instagram was a very different landscape. So if you were putting out good content, it felt like there was just kind of steady growth. And now I'm so over it. I'm so annoyed at Instagram and all the changes <laughs> and stuff, but um, yeah, it's been hovering like over somewhere over 99,000 for a while. Wow. That's amazing. So you're pretty much, you have like hundred K you know, we'll just round it up because you're almost there. And how is it like, why did you decide to start your Instagram account? And because I know it's, it's definitely, it's a really educational and inspiring place to be part of your community. Um, I could tell that you work really hard on your content. Oh, thank you. Sure. For sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I understand the frustration of Instagram. So the algorithm, trust me. <laughs> so um, I think it's from, you know, whoever's in that Instagram world could rec- recognizes other people who are putting in that effort. So it's amazing. So what inspired you to, to start that? I started it in 2016, which I know off the top of my head, because I, there weren't that many there. There were so few therapists on Instagram at that point that I was like, am I going to get in trouble? I was like calling the ethics board and stuff. <laughs> you know, like, am I allowed to do this? And, um, I just wanted to, I was, um, just starting, like I was kind of in between jobs and just waiting to start my job at William and Mary and at their counseling center. Um, and I was bored and wanting to like put out kind of like free information, like be like a free resource and do that as part of my give back type community work or whatever. Um, and I just noticed it was really, really fun, especially at first. It was just so fun to 
have ideas and put things out there and then connect with people. Um, it's become, I would say over the years, like much more saturated now. So it feels different. Sometimes it feels like just shouting into the abyss with like a hundred other messages that are the same thing. Um, but, and it's also hard to maintain, I feel like being genuine on social media at this point, because you're like, how can I grow my following or how can I like get with the algorithm? So, but at that point, it felt so easy to just be genuine and be like, this is a place where I can have a personality and, you know, do the psychologist job in a little bit of a different way. And it was just so fun at first. It's still fun in various ways, but just you know, I have a lot of nostalgia for the beginning stages of my account. Yeah, totally. Right. So then you just started posting and then it just grew. So what it is? Yeah, it grew. And then at some, like some point, it just kind of became exponential with the growth. Um, and yeah, just made connections and started just experimenting with things like letterboard posts or, um, dancing around or just being a little bit more using self-disclosure here using like research-based posts there and just and also sometimes not posting on eating disorders posting about like loneliness friendship um you know it was just it's been a roller coaster for sure yeah I'm sure especially you've been on their Instagram for like six years now so um it, it has really the platform itself has evolved so much as you mentioned so there's just a whole another like it's, it's a constant learning experience and growing experience so yes it's so interesting so how do you as a therapist because you're seeing clients right one-on-one so um and what are your Instagram boundaries like are they allowed to follow you you know and and also how do you decide what you could post knowing that your clients are probably seeing it yeah, I don't mind if people, it's actually my paperwork that um, you're free to follow this professional account. Um, I just don't accept followers in my private account from my clients that I'm seeing. Um, and I used to, if uh, somebody asked me specifically to follow them back, like a client asked me specifically to follow them back, I used to do that um, just kind of like out of respect via the professional account. But I, I think there was something that was put out by the ethics code about like asking people not to do that or why that's not a good idea. So I actually don't do that anymore. So like no following back and um, yeah, but they're free to follow that account if they want to. Certainly don't have to. I would get why you'd be like, okay, I've had enough of her for the week. <laughs> um, but I am constantly thinking about the people that I work with when I post because I think it's a slippery slope and I don't think people talk about it a lot, but the relationship that you have with somebody as like therapist client, it's going to be impacted by you sharing something on the internet. Like it just is, and it can be impacted in a great way. But, um, for example, like when I'm going through, um, infertility treatments, I went through IVF while having that Instagram account and I did not post about it. Not a word. I just didn't even give any, there was, and it was such a struggle. And I probably had so much content that I could have put out, but I was like, I don't think it's going to be helpful to the people that I work with. If they know I'm in a place where this is such a struggle, because I don't, I want that hour to still be about them and I can make it about them. And, you know, I can disconnect from that struggle. So I don't want to accidentally have them be like, is she okay? Is she going to be able to focus on me today? Like that seems unfair you know, and I know a lot of therapists feel differently and I respect that, 
that they feel like they can just kind of share if they're going through a trauma. But I, um, that's sort of like my, something that I'm always thinking about and one of my boundaries is really not sharing about current struggles. Okay. Yeah. That makes total sense. So, so will you share about it after once it's over? Yeah. And I'll be sure usually to say like, and now I'm in a good place, you know, I like to like the IVF process is now over. And also, you know, I've had miscarriages over the years. Um, and they're obviously, I'm, you know, they're over. So, and I feel like I've gotten like help and I'm in a good place at this point. So I will share and have shared, um, but not in excruciating detail. I will say that I'm kind of like, I'm definitely big on self-disclosure, but in a really like limited, cautious and almost like gentle manner as a therapist. Okay. Yeah. That makes total sense. So you recently wrote a book called the inside scoop on eating disorder recovery. Could you tell me about that? Yeah, that was my little project. Actually, I had, I had my son, um, in 2020 and then writing that book and submitting the manuscript with my co-author, Jennifer Rowland, um, that was the 2020 project. So (laughs) that was not my smartest idea to do that when I had a newborn, but it was so much fun at the end of the day to put it all together. And basically we took everything that we wish we had had in a book when we were going through eating disorders, we wrote that and kind of made it a very down to earth, um, quick read and just like a friendly, we kind of wanted it to be like, if you're older sister or maybe your cool aunt, because maybe we're too old to be older sisters at this point, but like older sister, cool aunt was like talking to you about, you know, recovery and trying to just be a source of information and um, friendship. That's what we wanted it to like feel like when you're reading it. Um, And we wanted to fill the void of information of other books that there's not a lot of eating disorder books that have like health at every size chapters or fat positivity chapters, or even just chapters on like orthorexia, exercise addiction. So we, we put that all in there and, um, included journaling prompts and little activities to try and just little tidbits of our personal journeys throughout again, in like a pretty limited way, but each chapter has like, we have a little box where we write, this is how it pertains to me. And this is how I handled this, you know? Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Thank you. It was my, my other baby of 2020. Oh, well, I feel like we've all had those 2020 babies, you know? <laughs> yeah. A lot of projects going on. Yeah. Like this podcast came about in 2020. Oh, really? Also, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a long story, but um, yeah, I feel like we've all had those projects that came yeah. out in 2020, which is great because we're helping the world. Like you brought this book. This is fantastic like as you mentioned before about privilege and you know not being able to get the help at least this is beneficial for those girls women people in general who are struggling and who maybe can't get the help they need yet but it kind of like just benefit them in the interim yeah yeah that's like that was our hope and you know ideally it's used as an adjunct to therapy but we also were hoping it can be a little light for people yeah you know a resource that's affordable and a light for people to see if they need help. Even, um, we have a whole chapter on like why there's a continuum of disorder eating and you do not need a diagnosis to be deserving of help. Um, so yeah, hope that's the hope with the book. And if it's been so wonderful to get like emails from moms, for example, who are like, I read the book and now I feel like I understand my daughter's struggle better. Like, 
or your book helped make me this, you know, helped me decide to go to treatment. Like it's, I can't tell you how every second of writing that book and how much of a headache it was is worth it. When I like hear feedback like that, like it just means I can't even put into words how much it means when I get those emails. I'm sure. Yeah. It's amazing. It's like for every person you help, you just helped a human being with the soul and just improve their life. Yeah. So, so special. So special. Well, yeah. So let me ask you the question that I ask everyone, which is what is something that you hope the next generation of women won't have to struggle with? I guess this is a little bit different than, I mean, I think my answer should like what everyone would expect with eating disorders, um, which I truly hope. And I also hope that we start to the next generation, at least feel maybe it's, will still be there, but there'll be like a massive pushing back against ageism for women. Because I think while we've started to push back a little bit against like the women need to be super, super small, um, ageism feels like, and, you know, having to forever look young. I don't even feel like we've touched that yet as, you know, womankind has been able to push back at all. So I hope the next generation that is like part of what's happening is there's less of an emphasis on like put everything, you know, all of your energy and money into looking young for the rest of your life and fighting biology. And, um, by the way, men are allowed to age, but you're just not, you know, um, which I'm of course, like not immune to, I struggle with it as well. Uh, but I just hope that there's like some change similar to how there's been, there needs to be much more with weight and disorder eating and women need to be small, but I think it's starting to change. And I hope for the next generation, that's starting to like really change as well. I love that. Yeah. That's so important. Um, so Colleen, where can people find you if they want to learn more about you? Um, they can go to my website, which is ColleenReichman.com, um, or my Instagram account, which is at Dr. Colleen Reichman. Um, I think I have a, yeah, I have a Facebook page. I'm not super active on, but it's also Dr. Colleen Reichman. So, um, really changing it up there. And then, um, if anyone needs to, is looking for a therapist or, you know, I have a practice and people can through the website, make an appointment with one of our therapists. And then the link for the book is on the website as well. Okay. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining me today, sharing your story and so much valuable advice for our listeners. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me. This was so much fun. My pleasure. That's all for tonight. Thanks so much for listening. Connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at Carmela Cosmetics. That's Carmela with a K. And on our website, CarmelaCosmetics.com. If there's a woman in your life whose story needs to be heard, send me a message to let me know who she is and why she means so much to you. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to know your thoughts. We want you to feel heard. 